We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Transformative Principle, Episode 77 with Ron Fortunato. Before I get started today, I've got a couple of announcements that I want to make real quick. The first one is that I have joined uh, Chris Nessie's podcasting network, and I hope that you uh, will check out the other great shows on there. It's Education Podcast Network at edupodcastnetwork.com. And I'm pretty excited about joining this because there's a lot of the people whose voices I care about that are doing podcasts on there as well. So Spike Cook and Teresa Stagger, who I've had on the podcast before, they both, um, they do the Principal PLN podcast and they're on there. Um, uh, Jason Bodnar, who's been a guest, is on there as well. So is Brad Gustafson and a lot of other really great educators. So I hope you'll take a minute and check that out and uh, make sure you share that with your friends. In the episode today, where we're talking with Ron Fortunato, um, he is a he works for NASA Ames, and he also works with schools to create project-based activities for students. And he takes it to the next level. Most project-based learning involves like trying to solve a real-world problem in a school environment. What he's trying to do is connect schools with real um, agencies and solve real problems and have the students work with those agencies. So we're going to be talking about the Global Earthquake Forecasting System in this episode that is part of our school district's um, relationship with Mr. Fortunato, and there's some pretty amazing stuff in here. I hope that you like it. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to the Transformative Principle. 
today as our guest we have Ron Fortunato who uh, works for NASA Ames. Is that your official employer? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, NASA Ames Research Center in okay. uh, uh, California and, and several districts throughout Alaska and other places. Okay, so Ron is here in Kodiak right now working with our uh, school district on what's called the America Bridge Project. And he's got a real, lot of really cool things that he's doing with our kids. And I'm just going to let Ron describe um, the different projects we have going and and what your role is in all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are a lot of projects going on in Kodiak. We just started last fall, and uh, we now have five or six projects going. We expected to do three, uh, and we've actually doubled them because there's so much of a demand to do these types of projects. And there's a big difference in the projects uh, that we're doing. They're all real-time, real-world projects. So uh, when, when you hear a very common term of project-based learning, those are typically activities-based learning mm -hmm. programs where there's a, a defined outcome. Uh, they certainly give you a way to get there. You know, how do you define a project? You know, how do you set goals and these types of things. But in the end, you, you know what you're going to get uh, out of them. Whereas what we do is we identify uh, partners in the real world who are doing actual work and research and we allow get them to allow our students to actually participate in the work they're, so they're not interns they're actually part of their teams so, so how how does that work so like our students are actually working right alongside NASA scientists but they're just in middle or high school how does right? How does well, that good point. We we have projects going from elementary through high school, and we level them based on you know that that content that they need to see. Uh, for for NASA Ames Research Center, basically, I'm responsible for a lot of their education outreach, and but the thing is, we're working with uh, researchers that aren't tasked to work with education. So what I do is um, I'm enabled to go in there and to observe, listen to the research researchers discuss what they're doing, what the problems is they're solving, which haven't been solved. And once I identify what those are, I try to determine if we can turn those into projects. And through our long-term relationship, if I'm able to bring students and teachers up to a performance level that's suitable to work on the project, then they accept them as part of the team. And in Kodiak, like I said, we have multiple projects going on. Mm -hmm. And we have partners like NASA Ames Research Center. Now we have NASA Johnson Space Flight Center. So some very, very high-end partners like that. We also have NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, who have strong presence here in Kodiak. Uh, we have other programs uh, like IntelliSense Technologies that uh, create sensors and platforms for Coast Guard, Department of Defense, things like this. So uh, when I go down to a NASA Ames or in other places or meet with these other partners, what I do is find out what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And and there there's the big difference is uh, we identify actual ongoing problems that are being solved. And then I figure out how to build those projects in the district and get the support from the superintendent, school board, all the way through the school system and, and build those projects and we do a long series of training mm -hmm. for the teachers uh, and administrators so that 
they build capacity on site to continue the projects because they're long term and uh, make them sustainable that way. Yeah, that's amazing. So before we get into what the actual projects are that we're working on, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with NASA originally. And you've told me your long version of the story. And just give us the highlights about about that awesome part of your life that you know started 30 years ago. I started, uh, you know, I was a teacher uh, in junior high school and high school in Norfolk, Virginia. And at that time, I was working with students after school who were just looking for more things to do. They they had satisfied all the requirements in their classes and were looking for things to do. So I would work with them, and we'd come up with new topics all the time to research and study and, mm-hmm. and just keep learning things. And at that time, we saw that NASA Langley Research Center had come up with this request for proposals. And they wanted to get involved with education. Uh, and the reason was because... The graduates that were coming to them didn't know how to solve problems. They would just come and, and say, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And they said, we don't want that. We want you to be able to think on your feet, problem solve and be innovative. We want you to learn how to learn these these skill sets. And so they figured, well, college is too late uh, to, to do that. So we'll get involved at maybe the school district level, but we don't know how to do that. So we're going to put out this experiment and whoever wins this proposal we're going to put their experiment on the space shuttle Mm -hmm. and so there was the gift but at the same time that that was their way of getting involved so we just decided well let's go for it so the students worked on a proposal and they built it and sent it in and and they won it so we win this thing and i'll never forget uh uh, with the superintendent, we it was like catching a big fish, but not knowing how to clean it. Right. You know, it's like, oh wow, we want a spaceflight project, and well, how the heck do you do that? Uh oh, uh oh. And so I met with him, and I and I went over to Langley, and I talked to um, the director over there, and, and I said, oh man. I so I came back, and I said, you know what? If we're not gonna, if we don't do this right, we might as well just give it back. Mm-hmm. because we have to learn a whole lot of things that we don't know how to do. So just to be clear, you just won a proposal contest, right? Yes. So it's like a, a, a business plan contest. There's no right. proof of concept. It's just, here's our ideas. We think this would be cool to yes. see. And, <laughs> and your kids and, came up with this. But here's why we won. And it's something, it's a technique I've used for the rest of my career. And that is, we happened to pick a project that they would have done. Mm-hmm. And when they saw it, when, when the scientists saw what we were attempting to do, they they thought, oh, well, wow, we, we want to do this ourselves, so mm-hmm. let's do this one. And that's, that's why when I go to NASA or IntelliSense or, uh, you know, the Center for Earth Simulation, what we do is find out what is interesting to them. They're all real-time, real-world projects. But if we choose those, then they're willing to support them and get you involved with them if you can help. Mm-hmm. If you come up to them, and I've seen this so many times, educators usually go and say, uh, would you help us do this? Right. And they go, you know, we'd like to, but we just don't have time to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what usually happens. Whereas what we're doing is saying, well, here's the problem to be solved. They're mm-hmm. already working on it. Let's see if we can get the skill set to do that too. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's how we got involved with it. So we won it, and uh, and I went through an incredible training process myself. And uh, yeah, I'll try to keep those stories short. But basically, <laughs> I went over to NASA, and my knees were shaking. And I and I said, "Geez, these guys are awfully smart." And uh, <clears throat> and I went in there, and I was supposed to present what we were doing, what we were going to do. Wow, we just gave you this big experiment package mm-hmm. uh, to do, and this ticket on the space shuttle. And what are you going to do? And I was just going over to say, well, okay, we, all our high schools, we have five high schools. They're all getting bussed into the vocational technical center. We've got a lot of support there to build things. I was just going to say what we were going to do. And I was supposed to meet with the director and his chief scientist. That was already scary. Yeah. I walked into the room there at NASA and the room's filled with about 60 people. And and, I'd, and talk about shaking knees. I went, oh, geez. So I sat down in the nearest chair, and I'm breathing, you know, really heavy and, and, and just shaking. And this guy's next to me, all excited. And he's looking around. He goes, wow, do you realize who's in this room? And I'm going, <laughs> and I'm going I don't know anybody in this room. And he said, this is the Viking team. He said, these guys put Viking on Mars. And I said, what are they doing here? <laughs> and what had happened was exactly that. They saw that we were doing an experiment that they would do, and they offered to come and serve as mentors to help bring us up to speed and to teach us their jobs and their careers. And that's why they're not tasked to do it. They're not resourced to do it. They just volunteered only because it was a worthwhile experiment. And that's how we got in, and they taught. I went through project management training with them, and they taught me about how to do systems organizations and build spaceflight organizations, and from that I learned how to do it in many discipline areas because they're incredibly multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. And when you see one person in a sub-project doing something, that person knows what everyone else in the other projects are doing. They know how what they do affects them and how what they do affects them. So in a systems-oriented project like that, uh, you can make extremely rapid progress. So th- those are the techniques I learned from them. And that's how I started doing it. Um, I finally, I, I then got pulled out to do, um, uh, to be director of technology for the city. And then soon after that, I became a consultant because other districts really wanted to do these kinds of projects. Mm-hmm. And what makes these so different, again, is that you're doing real things with real organizations. The stuff that they're doing, you're not coming up with ideas to give them you're taking their ideas and the things they're working on and getting it distilled down to a level where our elementary middle and high school students can access it and then finding a way to make it work like that yeah it's a lot like that and and then when you build that foundation and you can start actually working on tasks then you start performing your first tasks that belong in the project and when you're successful, and you make a lot of mistakes, mm-hmm. and, and we've seen the brightest of the, of the students make mistakes, and they're not used to making mistakes, right. and all of a sudden, there's no ceiling here. You know, I can keep going and going and going because I'll never reach that level while I'm in high school, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. for sure. And and so you, you end up in this position where these real-time tasks go, and they don't wait. So if you can't keep up, they keep going. So it's a matter for us to gain, you have to build a different kind of organization to run it. So what you see in Kodiak right now is when you look at the uh, 
the schools and and the teachers who are running America Bridge projects, um, they're not only working real time on the projects, but they're actually building up those skill sets in a way that can be translated from those kids to the teachers to the professional organizations. The skills they're learning are very, very um, higher end. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happens is that the teachers are finding out that the standards and objectives that they're supposed to cover in their discipline areas are actually getting covered uh, in the real-time projects, but they're all applied. So so to your point, they're real-time projects and problems. So what happens is, is when we get that foundation there, we often find other things to do that spin from them. Mm-hmm. So we're working on a global earthquake forecast system. That's a phenomenal thing to begin with. But the students all of a sudden found ways to build other models of forecast systems or ways to get into electronic programs that they hadn't done before. These things keep spinning because they're real. Right. So you glossed over a global earthquake forecast system like it's no big deal because you've been working with it, right? But for someone like me who grew up in Southern California who was still living down there when the Northridge earthquake happened and... That was a big deal. That was an important part of my childhood that I remember. Mm. Um, A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people Mm -hmm. died from that. And what you're saying is that you're building a way to predict those earthquakes. It's it's actually, yeah, it's actually a forecast system. And and what happened was uh, when I was down at uh, NASA Ames, uh, I ran into these researchers who had identified pre-earthquake signals. And what they found was that when tectonic plates, plates crush against each other with, with such incredible force, they actually change the chemistry in the rocks, which release electrons. Uh, these flowing electrons uh, create electromagnetic fields, which can be measured. And while that happens, they also release positive charged ions. And these things drill right through the rock, through the surface. The electromagnetic waves are very long waves, so they go right through the rock. Mm-hmm. And the crust. So we've picked up signals. We use magnetometers uh, on our special stations that we have. But basically, we can pick up these pre-earthquake signals now. And it was a matter of learning about what the Earth was telling us. There, there are all these signals coming up prior to an earthquake. And we've now started to identify what those are. So you have the seismic side. When you get the shake... You know you have a, an earthquake, and it says you got a 5.3, and it was right here, latitude and longitude, and it was this deep. That's your hypocenter. Mm-hmm. So it tells you that. But it didn't tell you it in advance. It told you when it happened. What the pre-earthquake signals do is as these stresses build up underneath the rock, they start sending these signals up. Mm-hmm. And if you can capture those, then based on their strength and distance away from your sensors you can actually see something coming. And so when I first saw this presentation, I'm looking at the list of the uh, presentations, and there's this global earthquake forecast system. And I said, just a second. Right. I said, "Eh, what do you mean? Nobody forecasts earthquakes. And he said, Ron, you've got to see this. And that's what they were showing me. And so uh, NASA Ames charged uh, IntelliSense Technologies to build a brand-new sensor platform with just pre-earthquake sensors. And the very first platform ever built to be tested 
came here to Kodiak. So that's when I brought the, the program here. And that's when, you know, Kodiak superintendent, Stuart uh, McDonald and, and yourself, you know, all these, all these folks who got it and said, whoa, we can actually be on the cutting edge of research. And what, what I explained to the school board and the administration is that we're actually going to be creating a research and development environment in mm -hmm. your school district. And it's not going to be just for technology or these things, but actually for pedagogy. How do you teach differently like this? How do you teach all these different disciplinary areas inside of real-time projects? Because when you look at, you know, I was a math teacher. I was a science teacher. When you look at those courses, they're very siloed. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to teach your discipline. But in the real world, it's not separated like that. So when you get into a real-world project, you are crossing many disciplines. And that that is one thing that automatically happens. But at the same time, you have to be willing to take chances, to try things out. Some mm -hmm. things aren't going to work. NASA, NASA, they were the first ones to tell me, we don't learn a darn thing when we do something right. Right. You know, because we missed all the things that are going to go wrong later. So it's like we try things and we learn from the mistake and then we make the adjustment, we prototype it, and then we do the next one. So we do this rapid prototyping process where it also applies to teaching. Right. Is you have students learning in a new way. And in a real-world environment, they're showing you how to teach them. They're showing you their learning styles every day. So as that's going on, you're working on a real problem and you're, you're coming up with some solution the best you can. At that moment, you try something out. And you, what works, you use. What doesn't work, you adjust, and then you do it again. So it's not like you don't plan a year ahead of what to do because it's never going to look like that in a year. So you do much shorter prototyping, mm -hmm. and, and that goes along with the training, and that's how we train the teachers too. Right. We don't just do a big, long workshop and then leave you alone. We work with something, and then you try it right there in your classroom, and we'll model it for you, and then you'll mm -hmm. do it. And then we'll see what works and what doesn't work. And then we'll adjust that. And so it's actually a rapid training, prototype mm -hmm. training model that goes with it too. Yeah. And so since since the earthquake sensor was installed um, in, I think it was October, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've been able to, the kids have been working with this system mm -hmm. since it wasn't, even before it was installed, right? And there have been students that have been actively involved in working with NASA on reading the data, on mm -hmm. figuring things out, on making a, modifications even. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So what happens when IntelliSense builds a new platform like this, they can take up to a year to test it and harden it before it goes out into the field. And I just convinced them that a sensor platform like this that's never been done before the only way to really prototype it is on site, mm -hmm. especially in Alaska. You know, the reason, of course, they love it being in Alaska because we are incredibly seismic and one of the most active places on the planet. And because of that, it's a perfect place to test the, mm -hmm. these platforms. So they got it to us after only a month or two of prototyping. So it wasn't even nearly finished. But what that enabled us to do is be part of the prototype the feedback and development process. Mm -hmm. So our students are actually uh, working with the data coming off of the sensors. They work with IntelliSense. They work with NASA. They read the data. They were just supposed to maintain the platform, but we 
the students, of course, wouldn't stop there. So we learned more about the science. We learned about how to analyze the data that we mm -hmm. were receiving. And since October, we've actually had NASA verify that we identified four pre-earthquake signals, anomalies. Basically, you get these signals that hit the sensors. You have this baseline when nothing's happening. And when all of a sudden you see these anomalies in the data, you go, oh, something might be happening. But we don't know what's causing it. It could be some electromagnetic disturbance that's local. So we have to hunt all those things down and find out. And that helps them prototype the platform. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, though, uh, we saw these four different anomalies. And we saw that USGS reported the earthquake immediately after each anomaly. Right. So we conducted, we created a report, and we sent it to NASA. And I said, I don't know if we've seen anything. We don't know. <laughs> we, we need to see 10,000 of these before you have a model. But we, we said, we think we've seen something. They said, are you kidding? Send us the report because that's the first live pre-earthquake signals we've ever seen. The other stuff they've done, the, what the researchers determined what the pre-earthquake signals were from, were from previous earthquakes. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the data that was available. And they looked at the Denali earthquake. And they looked at the um, others in California and Turkey and Italy. And they saw the similarities. And they, they thought, wow, we do have something that's pre-earthquake signal. <clears throat> so we were the first ones to see them live. So we sent the reports down to NASA, the best that we could write them. Right. And NASA came back with this real tough review only because they verified the data. Right. So that put us in a whole different place. At that point, Kodiak was accepted as part of the team, the Global Earthquake Forecast System. Wow. So they identified four earthquakes, and they were anywhere from uh, 24 to 41 hours prior to the earthquake. And that's the reason we're doing it. Earthquake forecasting, it's so incredibly important to everyone around the world. Because if you could get people off coastlines, mm -hmm. if you could have shut down that nuclear reactor in Fukushima before that tsunami hit, the the saving of lives and the risk management that you could have is extraordinary. That's right. why it's so important. That's why NASA is so um, involved with it. Uh, European Space Agency and European Union is heavily involved, as well as many other countries. So the amazing thing is that the first platforms that had pre-earthquake sensors are in Alaska, and not just in Alaska, but in school districts. Right. And They're, Kodiak has two. You have one in Kodiak. You have another one in Old Harbor that's mm -hmm. still being tested. There's one in Ketchikan and Craig as another pair. And the fifth one is going in inside of one month to Copper River. Wow. The f only five on, in the whole world are right here. And students are involved with managing, maintaining, and learning about them as right. we go. Yeah. And they are sitting on our school district buildings, right? So yes. the one here in Kodiak's is on our high school. Yes. And the one in Old Harbor is on the school that's out there. Yes. And that is an amazing thing that not only are we, you know, we get to have it there, but our kids are actually working on analyzing, collecting data, and then sharing those reports with mm -hmm. real actual scientists who do this for a living. Oh, right. Hey, thanks so much for listening to my podcast. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me that you're downloading it, that you're listening to it, 
and that you're listening all the way here until the end. If you could do me a favor and uh, go to iTunes and rate this podcast and then share it on social media, that would be really great and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher and please feel free to give us a rating on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes so that we can help spread the word about how much we're learning in this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.